From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Contact tracing is critical as the virus rages. Today, how that COVID-19 smartphone app is working out in Colorado. Then, Mesa County is at level red. So why are hundreds of businesses getting a pass on new restrictions? Those places, like with schools, are a more controlled environment, so we can really stop the spread quite easily. Later, bringing the hospital to your home. All of a sudden, they were talking, well, she needs IV medication. Well, they improvised by moving a lamp into my bedroom and hanging the IV from there. How expanded home care might free up hospitals in the pandemic. Plus, a type of store uniquely struggling right now. And two Colorado booksellers offer up titles to give as gifts, or keep for yourself. The majority of CPR's membership base gives monthly. Thank you to our Evergreen members for making support for Colorado Public Radio an ongoing priority in your budget. Your monthly donation is CPR's most reliable source of revenue, and it's put to work each and every day directly serving communities across our great state. This has been a year filled with unexpected change. As a member, you ensure that free access to news, information, and music remains unchanged. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A grim milestone, cases of COVID-19 in Colorado surpassed the 200,000 mark. That's double what they were just a month ago. In response, as you probably know, counties across the state are under level red restrictions. Meanwhile, DIA expects its busiest weekend since the pandemic began. With the rapid spread of coronavirus, we wondered if that contact tracing app for smartphones is making any sort of dent. It launched in October. KRCC's Elena Rivera is looking into this. Elena, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Users have to activate this app and just briefly remind us how it works. Yes. So people have to turn on their Bluetooth. And then if two people have the app activated with Bluetooth, anytime they're close to someone for more than 10 minutes, the phones exchange these anonymized tokens. Then if a person tests positive for COVID-19, they can send an alert to anyone they've exchanged these anonymized tokens with out in the universe to let them know that they may have been exposed. Um, Everything's anonymous, but the idea is it's supposed to supplement local public health contact tracing by getting the information faster to a wider group of people. So this is a dimension of contact tracing, which we have heard is so important in the pandemic. How many people have activated this app in Colorado? A little over a million people so far. A little over a million uh, in a state of, what, 5.7 million. So is that enough to make a difference? I think that's a really good question. Uh, There's a study out of Oxford University that CDPHE cites a lot that says if 15% of a population adopt the app, it could potentially reduce the infection rate by 8% and deaths by 6%. Uh, With that more than a million people activation number, Colorado's about at 17% which the department is encouraged by. I think it's also kind of important to note that this study is peer-reviewed. It's paid for by Google and Apple, who also made the app. And it's a little bit unclear how the community modeling kind of applies to Colorado. Um, But Sarah Thunberg with the department told me that this app is just one piece of the way that the state is slowing the spread of COVID-19. 
none of these strategies alone can do it. We all have to do all of them to the best of our ability. So wear a mask, enable exposure notifications, and just stay home. Okay, so 15% uh, something of a threshold for this app actually making a dent, and Colorado has crossed that at 17%. Our connection uh, dropped out just as you were talking about a study that is not peer-reviewed. I just want to make clear that it's not peer-reviewed. How many Coloradans so far have used the app to notify people of a positive COVID-19 result? Around 3,400 at this point. 3,400. Are there safeguards against like troublemakers who, for whatever reason, would raise a false alarm with this? Yeah. So when people get a positive COVID-19 test, they get a one-time specific code to them, either texted to them or told to them by a contact tracer to alert people through the app. So it has to come from a public health office or a verified testing site. And without that code, they can't input anything. When the app launched, again in October, there was concern about a lag time between a positive test result and those alerts that others had been exposed. Uh, Did Thunberg say anything about the immediacy of this system? So one of the reasons for the slowdown was because public health offices were in charge of giving out these codes, like I said, either on the phone with a contact tracer or via text. Uh, And they had to do that to everyone with a positive uh, COVID-19 test. And I think because cases have been climbing so rapidly, people just got behind and they couldn't really keep up with the demand of how many positive tests were coming in. Mm. Um, So at that time, I think the system was sending between 20 and 40 codes a day. One of the more recent updates was the department has automated these texts so that specific public health departments don't have to input them manually. Um, And now with automation, they can send between 3,000 and 5,000 every day, which is a huge jump. Um, And hopefully it reduces some of that burden on local health officials as they're trying to manage all of the rest of their COVID-19 response in their county. Right. So automating helped a lot. Have there been any other changes to the app since its launch? So more information uh, has gone through on the text when people get a positive test and they're implementing it in the app. Um, Now they have information right in that text about quarantining, about slowing the spread, about other information they need with their public health department. Like I said, I think overall it's supposed to be helping alleviate some of that burden on local public health offices, but definitely not a replacement for regular contact tracing methods. It'll be fascinating to see what happens after Thanksgiving with contact tracing in general and this app specifically. Elena, thanks so much for your reporting. Thank you for having me. Elena Rivera is a reporter with KRCC in Colorado Springs, which is a part of Colorado Public Radio. Counties hardest hit by COVID-19 are under new restrictions like a ban on indoor dining, strict limits on capacity in offices and gyms. It's this way for more than 20 counties, including Denver, Adams and Pueblo. On the western slope, Mesa County is in this group as well, but hundreds of its businesses are not scaling back, including those in this TV commercial made by the local health department. The new safety protocols have made it a challenge, but we have met that challenge head on. We're open. We can once again get back to what we are passionate about is health and wellness. So that was Paula Reese at Crossroads Fitness and Brian Bensley at Legacy Academy Gymnastics. Their businesses are able to operate with far fewer restrictions than Level Red normally allows, 
because of a program Mesa County started. To explain, CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg joins us from our studio in Grand Junction. Hi, Stina. Hi, Ryan. Fascinating program. Give us just like the top line of how it works. So its official name is the Variance Protection Program, but people around here, they call it Five Star for short. And basically, Five Star says that businesses that have this rating, they can continue to operate at a lower level of coronavirus restrictions. You know, that means bars can stay open even if they don't serve food Mm. and indoor dining can continue. You know, and that's all possible because uh, businesses, businesses have agreed to follow certain health rules. You know, and this is all about rewarding businesses for good behavior and creating a sort of uh, directory of businesses that you can trust. And it's the only program of its kind in the state. Who decides if a business meets this five-star threshold? What are the requirements? So Mesa County Public Health decides. They've got this uh, 45-point plan that businesses must follow. And all the requirements, they're, you know, the things we've been hearing about and talking about for months Frequent cleaning, social distancing, you know, mask wearing. How popular is the program? Oh, very. I mean, if you go through downtown Grand Junction or Palisade or Fruta, you're going to see those five stars in business windows. And the owners of those businesses, they're really eager to tell you that they're participating. You know, they want you to know that they're more open than the state rules you may have read about already. Uh, Jeff Coor is the executive director of Mesa County Public Health. And he says about 600 businesses are either part of the program already or have applied for it. And those are restaurants and wineries, you know, even a movie theater. I'm okay with allowing our businesses to continue to function as we work on a more targeted approach to the places that are seriously the source of our transmission. You know, Coor says those sources include small private gatherings, as well as group settings like jails and assisted living homes. And he says there just isn't too much proof that businesses are driving these new cases. But it should also be said that community spread is rampant right now. Earlier this month, Mesa County Public Health, they did have to put a pause on contact tracing for some cases of lower priority, you know, younger people, uh, because there simply wasn't, uh, there were too many cases to investigate but they have said that they have started, restarted contact tracing now. Which brings us to the fact that COVID-19 cases are surging in Mesa County. Are health officials worried that having these looser restrictions, somewhat widely adopted, could make coronavirus cases soar even higher? You're right. Mesa County has one of the highest coronavirus rates in the entire state. Hospitals are at or near capacity basically every day here. But I haven't heard from any hospital officials or other health officials that they think that Five Star is going to lead to more cases. But the state health department, it did almost revoke this program last week. That's when Mesa County moved into Level Red. Uh, Instead, Mesa County Public Health, you know, they say that the state health department is now recommending that the businesses that are part of this program, that they operate at tighter restrictions, you know, like 25 percent capacity instead of 50 But they're saying the indoor dining can continue. The bars can stay open in the program. But Jeff Coor with Mesa County Public Health, he told me that 
his people, they, they aren't really focused on those percentages. His department is. They're more worried on enforcing the rules that are enshrined in the five-star program, especially around the distancing and the masks. So what happens if one of these businesses doesn't follow the rules? Well, you can get tossed out, but that hasn't happened yet to anybody. Um Jeff Coor is saying that for the future, if a five-star business stops enforcing the rules, he's going to give them four days to start complying. And then if they don't, they're going to be dropped. Um, And he's even thinking about putting the names of those ejected businesses in the paper. But he is also stressing that just because a business has an outbreak, that does not mean they're going to be kicked out of five-star. And we work with those places to just, you know, controlled further spread and get past that that point and it doesn't impact their five-star status because it really is no indication on how they're implementing best practices at all it just you know those places like with schools are a more controlled environment so we we can really stop the spread quite easily I mean, there seems to be some mixed messaging. What, what does the state health department say about this program, which, again, lowers restrictions for so many businesses in such a dramatic way? Well, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment did approve the program, and they've even said that they would like to see it replicated across the state. Oh. But they've also said that its future uh, depends on Mesa County's cases starting to decrease, and that has just not happened in a big way. I mean, We're on a several-day trend of decreasing cases, but we're still in the top 10 of high case rates across the state. Just last week, we had our highest day ever of cases. What does the local health department say it's trying to do to reverse that trend? Well, they're doing a lot of messaging, you know, about taking precautions about the virus. But they just – they don't want to strictly punish businesses. Jeff Coor, he says that the idea is – rewarding businesses that are doing the right thing, but they're not going to shut down those that may not be. You know, and Coor puts this really strong emphasis on the personal responsibility of customers. If you go into a business and you don't like the way that they're conducting themselves, then, you know, walk out of that business. But Mesa County Public Health is likely not going to intervene in some big way. You know, they're hoping that this five-star program is going to encourage businesses to do better because the program could be a lifeline for them. There have been protests against Mesa County Public Health. Is that related to this five-star program for businesses? Uh, No, you know, it's the opposite. You know, people who were protesting outside the health department's office last week, they were saying things like Jeff Coor and his department are being way too strict. They're killing businesses. But I think that just shows how confusing all of this is. Mesa County has this program that allows for the least restrictive rules for businesses in a county at level red. You know, businesses are really loving that. But the general public may still not fully understand it. Well, in that case, thanks for shedding light, Stina. Oh, glad to be here, Ryan. CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg talking about Mesa County's Variance Protection Program for businesses, better known as Five Star. She joined us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction.
With COVID-19 inundating hospitals, a concept known as hospital at home is gaining traction. The idea is to allow certain patients who might otherwise be hospitalized to get treatment at home for heart disease, lung disease, or other serious illnesses. Susan Sarchet remembers the day a medical team carried two cases of equipment into her house. They took an x-ray of her lungs. All of a sudden, they were talking, well, she needs IV medication. Well, they improvised by moving a lamp into my bedroom and hanging the IV from there. Sarche, who turned 80 this year, has a lung disease known as COPD. She was among the first to be treated under a pilot program called Advanced Care through the company Dispatch Health. Patients are assessed at home to see if they can be successfully treated there. Sarche, who'd been hospitalized multiple times for COPD, was eager to avoid another trip. In the hospital, seven days in the last one in the ICU, and I never saw the same person twice. And so she felt disconnected there and says she never really got a good night's sleep. In the hospital, somebody's waking you up all night long. I would have to have breathing treatments like three or four during the night. Somebody else came to take my blood where you really don't rest. At home, she says, the staff got to know her routines and adapted to her schedule. If all was well, they'd leave when they were done, call her to check in before bed. And Sarchet was attached to monitors, so her care team knew if she needed urgent attention. The whole setup, which went beyond traditional at-home care, allowed Sarchet to maintain some independence. I was able to take my blood pressure, do my own weight, take my temperature, check my oxygen levels and so forth, and repeat those daily to the good night call, I called it, that I would have every day. Now, as you might imagine, the program doesn't work for everybody or every illness, but it is a way to preserve hospital beds, especially now at a time when they're in short supply. Let's talk through the benefits and challenges of hospital at home with Dr. Patrick Neeland. He's with Dispatch Health, which is based in Denver. Doctor, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ryan. Uh, Happy to be here. I want to be clear about the limitations to start with. Who does this not work for? What can't you provide at someone's home? It's a great, it's a great question, Ryan. And and clearly, uh, hospitals uh, have have a clear benefit in in a number of patient instances. Um, The target here is really for patients who have some of the more common medical illnesses, like the COPD illness you just heard uh, our patient Susan talk about. Um, and those patients that can be treated safely at home with the appropriate monitoring, the care team wrapped around them. Um, clearly, we wouldn't want to put a patient at risk who may need an intensive care level of treatment, for example, or may need to be escalated quickly for, say, surgery. Right. This is not surgery at home. We should be clear. You've worked as an emergency room physician, and I understand this grew out of efforts to help people avoid the ER, which, as we know, is often expensive care as well. When did you first recognize that some hospital care could be done differently, could be done at home? Correct. And I'll, I'll just I'll just say I'm, I'm actually an internal medicine physician, so I, I have trained in uh, hospital medicine, so treating patients in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Dispatch Health itself was founded by emergency medicine physicians as a way to keep patients out of the emergency room 
And this advanced care that we're discussing now is an extension of that project. So once you keep patients out of the emergency room, say, is there a way to then also keep them uh, out of the hospital if they need several days of high acuity care? Um, in my, my work in the hospital, it, it was clear early on in my career that um, there were opportunities to deliver a different type of care, a more personal type of care. Uh, I dedicated, you know, a decade of, of, my, of my practice to not just practicing clinical medicine, but also thinking about things like high quality care, safe patient care, care that patients really felt engaged in so that the, when they uh, continued without the care team, they really knew how to continue to take care of themselves. Um, the home offers just an incredible landscape for making a different type of connection with patients, building trust with patients in a different way, and also engaging them around their own care. We heard Susan in the clip uh, we just played uh, talk about, you know, she was checking her own vital signs. She was, she was encouraged and educated on managing her own medications over a series of days. That really just sets the patient up to be successful once the, once the care team is no longer in the home every day. So fascinating. Dispatch Health gets its start with trying to reduce ER visits. And then you look even beyond that and say, what other sorts of hospital visits might we be able to reduce if we go a bit further with the idea of at-home care? Uh, Is this a liability nightmare, a malpractice risk? I mean, it occurs to me someone dies or has an adverse outcome and the claim is going to be Gosh, my loved one should have been in the hospital. It's a it's a great cr- question and one um, that absolutely preoccupied our team as we were building out this model. I, uh-huh. I should say that um, the team of, of physicians and, and healthcare operations leaders and nurses that have built this model uh, here in Denver, um, most of us have formal training in, in patient safety and and safe care of these patients in the home was that absolute foundation of everything we built. Um, and so we, we ensure that safety through a couple of mechanisms. Um, one, um, our patients are equipped with a, what we call a PERS device. And the folks may have seen, for example, the, the I've fallen and I can't get up button on, on oh, yeah. TV commercials. Yeah. Um, that's a, it's a way for patients to, to uh, push that button and be directly looped into our team immediately or uh, 911 services. Um, as, as Susan also mentioned in the clip, we also equip our patients with remote monitoring um, so that we're able to uh, frequently be aware of how patients are doing. If anything is changing in terms of their vital signs, like their heart rate or their oxygen levels, uh, we can be made, made aware of that. Is there and then a, the third? Oh, yeah, the, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. The, the third thing, and, it, and we've, we've found this to be incredibly important, is we, we um, engage um, with, with patients around uh, what we call a partnership agreement in the home. Um, and, and this is laying a foundation of, you know, here's the risks, here's the benefits, here's what we're committing to you in terms of this type of care. Um, here's all the services you'll receive in the home. Um, and here's our asks, you know, of you while we, we walk through this care episode together. Um, and what we, what we found is that builds an incredible level of trust from, from the get go, um, making, making it easier, for example, for patients to speak up if they're worried about something, um, we also conduct safe, what we call safety huddles at the end of every visit to make sure everyone's on the same page, mm. everyone knows the plan of care, to really make sure that patient feels tucked in. Does insurance pay for this at this point, Dr. Neeland? Yeah, it's a great question. And traditionally, this, is, this has been one of the pieces holding back 
sort of the wide scale adoption of a hospital at home model here in the United States. Um, you know, there's there's been a uh, secular trend in terms of um, a, a movement in healthcare to pay for value and for outcomes rather than than just for services alone. Um, and that, along with you know the mounting pressure through through circumstances such as the current COVID uh, pandemic. Um, have really uh, given way to uh, more more sort of energy and movement towards finding ways uh, to pay for this type of care. So we've worked with uh, payer uh, insurance company partners uh, to pay for this level of care, um, and are continuing to build those partnerships with with both payers and health systems as a way to uh, pay for this uh, type of care. Okay, that sounded a bit like a half answer. In other words, it doesn't sound like insurance companies are paying for this yet. Well, some are. And so we have payer partners who are paying for this. Um, but I would say that um, at this point in time, not all payers are, are paying for this. Okay. Um, most are, are incredibly interested in figuring out a way to do so. Um, but it is a new uh, model of care that some of the historic and traditional payment um, mechanisms um, are not built for. Do you have any proof that this is cheaper than hospital care? I mean, I, I do think about the fact that you, you still need staff. People are expensive and that staff has to be mobile and they've got to have equipment that can be unplugged and plugged back in. Uh, what what are your early interventions with this proving about price? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, the goal here um, is is at least threefold. One is to reduce cost. One is to improve outcomes and there it is really to, to be patient-centered and enhance that patient experience. Um, and along the lines of, of cost savings, we've demonstrated um, now in over 50 patients that we've treated through this model about a $5,000 cost savings on average per patient in, in terms of healthcare cost savings related to this type of care. Let's bring COVID-19 into this equation. Um, w- w- would you see this as a significant contributor to easing the crunch on hospitals if this were more fully implemented? Oh, absolutely. And we have uh, multiple conversations ongoing with health health systems um, here in Denver and and around the country um, with with folks coming to us with, you know, we saying we need a release valve. We need a way to safely move patients out of our hospitals to make way for um, the, the, the more critically ill patients. Um, and if this model were um, um, scaled um, in that way, it could certainly provide that release valve. We have had uh, success here in Denver helping um, health system partners um, offload uh, safely some of that patient volume during COVID and continue to build those partnerships. Okay, so there's potential interest here from insurers. There's potential interest here from hospital systems. You mentioned the I've fallen and I can't get up technology, which should does not strike me as cutting edge. I think I think I grew up with that ad. But what sorts of technology um, have and advances in technology have allowed you to do hospital at home? Yeah, and it's really one of the exciting parts about the future of healthcare in my mind is the the ways that uh, technology is enabling more to be done in the home. Um, you know, the most the most uh, obvious answer around this is you know Bluetooth enabled devices. So. Hmm. Um, Things like blood pressure cuffs and um, oxygen monitors, um, uh, thermometers, blood sugar monitors that can all be connected via Bluetooth uh, to a device to a device in the patient's home that then uh, uploads and streams directly to the healthcare team um, outside of the home. 
So that you know that those those types of technologies are um, in, incredibly helpful in this. Um, there's a number of devices out there um, that are some form of a sticker, we should say that, or a patch that oh. patients literally attach to their skin um, that can do continuous monitoring for things like heart rate and respiratory rate and body temperature. Um, so again, that that type of technology enables a, a whole different level of, of sort of continuous monitoring of these patients in their homes and will continue to allow us to treat, you know, sicker and sicker patients um, in the comfort of their own home. Just briefly, is there a fundamental belief here that people will simply do better at home than they will in the hospital because that setting is more comfortable for them? Do you think that's the philosophy here in just a few seconds? Absolutely. And we've heard that time and time again from our patients that, you know, given the choice and given the safety, they would prefer um, time over time to be able to receive this kind of care at home. They're around their people. They're around their pets. Um, uh, they, they're not lonely <laughs> um, in, a, in a hospital bed. Um, and, and so we, we firmly believe that keeping patients in their environment is a critical part of continuing to help them heal. They're pets. That's such a nice thing to note. I wouldn't want to leave my cat, Bob. If I, I think I would feel sorry for him if I were in the hospital. Dr. Nealon, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Patrick Nealon is the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Dispatch Health. He leads a program that allows people who are sick to be treated at home. The goal is to avoid hospital stays and keep patients more comfortable. And the idea is gaining traction at a time when hospital beds are filling up because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, people were bummed when new restrictions were slapped on gyms and yoga studios. They say the benefits of group exercise ought to be weighed against the risks. Here is CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Perrin Kringle was about to open her yoga studio in Lakewood a few years ago, just as a huge hailstorm hit the area. And when we walked into the studio that day, it literally was just rain was coming down everywhere through the ceiling. Buckets. Kringle had to delay the opening to clean up. She eventually got things up and running and says built a community. She saw a couple years of steady business until the pandemic forced her classes online. Exhale, downward facing dog, hips up and back. Really nice, friends. Okay, we'll do that one more time without the holds. Inhale, lift your heels. I remember I just started crying one day and I thought, I love this community. This is where my friends are. They supported us during that awful hailstorm catastrophe. And I'm committed. Even in good times, yoga studios operate on thin margins. During the shutdown in the spring, Kringle says people stopped yearly memberships. She lost half her client base. Even when she reopened, she had to limit classes to less than half of normal. Then last week, metro area counties and others announced that gyms had to operate at 10 percent capacity. Kringle sees the restrictions as unfairly hitting businesses like hers. You know, I've been in recovery 16 years. I don't drink or smoke pot, but those are considered essential businesses. Yet for many of us in here, this is essential. This is, this is part of how we survive. 
There's no evidence gyms have driven infections in Colorado. So far, there's been one documented outbreak in the state linked to a gym in Montezuma County. But public health researchers say they can be more dangerous than other public places because of all the heavy breathing. Jose Luis Jimenez studies how COVID-19 travels through the air. He thinks the tighter restrictions on gyms in Colorado right now are justified and said they could go even further. I think it'd be better to do a more aggressive closer and try to lower the virus to much lower levels and then try to reopen more smartly. In Denver's Five Points neighborhood, Courtney Samuel says he keeps workers and clients safe. He enforces the mask requirement and spends a lot of time cleaning equipment. Samuel owns Bodies by Perseverance. And like yoga studio owner Perrin Kringle, he thinks his business is essential. People are losing their minds. So, you know, hitting mitts for 20 minutes is one of the biggest stress relievers. Keeping the body in shape, you, you have to do it right now. There you go. Now, don't throw hard, just score the point. Two teenage boys get coached in the boxing ring. One of their parents, Veronica Figoli, jumps rope nearby. Before the pandemic, we will come every Saturday and we will, like, we used to do these classes and it was actually our place of gathering, right, and our place of of, um, being together and forming community. She's happy her family still gets to exercise, at least, through appointment now. But it's definitely not the same. Nothing can change to the fact that when you're together, you feel the human energy, right? The heat. We burn calories by being with each other. (laughs) Figoli worries about Samuel, the gym's owner. A handful of gyms and fitness studios in Colorado have closed permanently during the pandemic. Samuel says there's no question the pandemic has been a big hit to his bottom line. Because we have to offer more classes. So my payroll's increased, but my membership hasn't increased. So we can't generate as much revenue, but we have to pay out more revenue. But Samuel is determined to stick around. And yoga studio owner Perrin Kringle says she won't walk away, especially now. There are a lot of people struggling with anxiety and depression, you know, rates of Suicides going up, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, and this is a place where people can can calm down, relax. Kringle and Samuel are hopeful that promising vaccines on the horizon will mean a return to rooms full of sweaty, enthusiastic Coloradans working out together. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. Local merchants are struggling in the pandemic, and you've probably heard their pleas to buy local. One type of retailer is uniquely affected, museum stores. With museums closed or strictly limiting crowds, their gift shops are hurting. So it's why on Sunday there is a global coordinated effort to encourage museum shopping in person or online, depending on local restrictions and your comfort level, of course. In Colorado, a bevy of museums is taking part from the Foothills Arts Center in Golden to the WOW Children's Museum in Lafayette. In Denver, most of the biggies are taking part. So is Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum on the old Lowry Air Base. Karen Sly hopes Sunday's campaign will help keep the museum aloft through a turbulent time. You know, overall, it is very hard. I think that we as museums depend on, if you will, attendance and, you know, our members and donors um, to help us. It becomes very important for us to have events like this um, to keep us alive and well. 
You can find out who all is participating at museumstoresunday.org, museumstoresunday.org. And on a similar theme, artists are encouraging patrons to buy art this Sunday. Those participants are listed at artistssunday.com, artistssunday.com. Okay, we'll be right back with books you can snuggle up with or give as gifts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The holidays will look a little different this year, but to keep your spirits bright, we are doing things differently in CPR's daily newsletter, The Lookout. I'm Francie Swidler from CPR News, and for Thanksgiving, we're featuring favorite recipes from Colorado Public Radio staff and their families, from classic cocktails to delicious desserts, surprising sides, and excellent entrees. Find them all in The Lookout this week, along with a big picture of the day's news in Little Bites. Sign up to get The Lookout free at CPR.org lookout. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Maybe you plan to spend the holidays closer to home this year, which may leave more time to cozy up with a good book. Well, today, winter reading and gift recommendations from two Colorado booksellers. Rick Griffith owns Matter, a print shop and bookstore in Denver. He's co-owner there. Pleasure to have you, Rick. Hi there, Ryan. And in nice Steam, yeah, uh, and in Steamboat Springs, Jenna Meyer Bilbo is a buyer for Off the Beaten Path Bookstore. Hi, Jenna. Hello, hello. <laughs> You've each brought a range of suggestions, fiction, nonfiction, but I thought we'd start with kiddos. Uh, Jenna, you have a children's book with some nifty illustrations. What'd you pick? Yeah, I do. Um, I have actually technically a whole series, um, the Eli and Mort's Epic Adventures, but the newest one is the Colorado Summer Road Trip. And the great part about it is um, all of the illustrations are done by different kids all over the state um, from sort of all different grades. So this is part of Epic Adventures that I guess are ongoing, Eli and Mort have. What, around Colorado? Yes, Eli the boy and Mort the moose, they're (laughs) adorable, and there's a bunch of them. So there's a Steamboat Springs one, obviously, Um, but there's also one for Aspen and Vale and Beaver Creek, and this newest one, the summer road trip, goes um, beyond the ski towns and goes all over the state down to, like, the Cliff Palace at Mesa Verde, to rodeos out on the far eastern plains, to the balloon rodeo here in Steamboat Springs. Um, really, really great option for um, any kids who can't go out and be on the road for the holidays because of this nasty little COVID situation. Yes. Uh, it must be so gratifying if you're a young person to see your illustrations published in a book. So uh, the, our first recommendation, Eli and Mort's Epic Adventures, a series by Alyssa and Ken Nager. Um, Rick, you have one for young readers as well from an author who used to lead a school for kids with autism, I believe. Yeah, Jason Gruel is also a, a psychotherapist, and um, he wrote a book called Everything is Connected. And it's... Uh, True, true to sort of the bolder ethos, it's a Shambhala book. It's a book that kind of connects young people to their entire surroundings and to the universe that we live in. And it takes the time to kind of draw young people towards both themselves and everything around them as participants. And it's a really beautiful book. It's illustrated by um, 
a Portuguese illustrator, but it's written by a uh, Boulder person, Jason Gruel. Yeah. Everything is connected, a kind of Buddhist sensibility for young people. And by the way, we'll have a list of these recommendations a bit later at CPR.org. A little further down the timeline, let's move to some young adult reads. Jenna, you're jazzed about a title that you say both young men and women will embrace. What you got? Yeah, um, I am totally obsessed with this book. It's called Crow Flight. It's by Susan Cunningham, who's one of our local authors here in my area. And it's amazing because it can be really easy to find young adult novels for young women, but it can be a little bit tricky to find um, novels that young men are going to be really sucked into. And I think this book does that beautifully. It was nominated for a Colorado Book Award. Um, and it's a little bit mystery, a little bit like hacker, um, intrigue, um, just a really, really solid story. A um, little bit of sci-fi, like I said, a little bit mystery, a little bit something for everybody. And I love it. Crow Flight by Susan Cunningham. Yeah. I, I want to just pick up on something you said there. There's a dearth of books for young men, huh? Um, it can be tricky to find something for young men to read, um, at least in my experience in the book industry. Uh, there was a huge boom of books for teen girls um, and then going up into women like in their early 20s. Uh, and unfortunately, that boom didn't really keep up with um, books that sort of speak to men and young boys trying to keep them into like reading as a hobby. They sort of go from these juvenile books and then there's a few options in young adult and then they just bounce right into adult. Okay, Rick, let's talk about adults now. And you have a collection of short stories whose author has deep roots in Colorado. Tell us about this. Yeah, we've got this book called Sabrina and Karina. And um, it's basically my partner put this um, particular selection together. It's a Latinx book. It's a collection of short stories, National Book Award finalist. um, And it's really a beautiful document that kind of travels with young women of indigenous descent. And it's, I, I haven't read it yet, but my partner says it's a fantastic document. And ultimately, I think that it goes a long way to sort of speaking for and with people who are underrepresented and our bookstore carries a lot of books that fall into this area. And so, um, yeah, Sabrina and Karina. Sabrina and Karina by the local author Kali Fajardo Anstein, as you said, yeah. a finalist for the National Book Award. I'll say that I have had the pleasure of reading these short stories and I enjoyed them thoroughly. I also interviewed Fajardo Anstein when this book first came out. You know, she writes a lot in this about gentrification, so I thought I'd play this exchange. Several stories poke fun at the term Highlands yeah. to, to describe a Denver neighborhood on the north side of town. Uh, help us understand why Highlands is a loaded term for folks in the city, some folks. 
I, you know, it's just so funny because I grew up, uh, like I was at 35th and Newton for a while and I was growing up and then I worked at West Side Books at 32nd and Lowell for a long time. And it was just, we never called it the Highlands. That was something that came about later. We called it the North Side. And I think, you know, these terms, when you have these real estate developers, they come in and they change the name of a place. And what ends up happening when you change the name of the place, you sort of are gutting the identity of the people who are already there and have been calling it something for a very long time. Um, yeah, so it's it's I have jokes in here because it's gentrification is a very sad, serious topic, but also sometimes it's just hilarious some of the things that happen. <laughs> Sabrina and Karina, another recommendation that we are getting either to read for yourself uh, this holiday season or to buy for others. Jenna in Steamboat Springs, let's hear about some nonfiction. You have a book about the Civil War, but I understand that it comes from a fairly fresh perspective. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, And then just about Sabrina and Karina, also, I am obsessed with that book as well. Um, (laughs) Some obsessions today from you. I love it. I don't like things. I love things. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, The Three-Cornered War. I uh, am a huge history nerd. I got it from my dad and Megan Kate Nelson. um, She is an amazing historian and she has written this book. It's called The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. And I think we talk about the Civil War a lot. I know we've been talking about um, the Civil War and its aftermath and obviously racial relations a lot this year. But we only talk about it up until the Mississippi. And I feel like we really don't talk about the Civil War and the effects that it had on the Western United States. We had the Colorado Territory. We had, you know, the Dakota Territory, um, Nebraska. And this really focuses a lot on the Southwest, including the Southwest parts of Colorado, which um, had a huge role to play in that particular national conflict. And I really think it's a conversation that deserves more um more, more attention from Civil War scholars and some just lay people who are interested in the topic, um, because there's certainly no shortage of them. This is an, an excellent book to get you started on that. The author, Megan Kate Nelson, a Colorado-born author, The Three-Cornered War, The Union, the Confederacy, and Native Peoples in the Fight for the West. You know, Rick, we so often focus on new titles in these segments, but you've dug up a classic for the holidays. Jack Kerouac's On the Road. A lot of Colorado <laughs> a lot of Colorado ties, of course. Why does this book speak to you right now? Well, because Colorado is not just a great place to be, but it's also a great place to write about. Historically, people have written about Colorado all the time, whether it's in songs or poetry, or whether it's you know, the lasting impression of Jack Kerouac in the School of Disembodied Poetics that's over at Naropa University. Right. Um, you know, it's a really important document. It's a really important kind of movement towards poetry and towards sort of admiring the Western landscape and what it does for people in a transformative sense. How many times do you think you've read On the Road, Rick? Uh, parts of it, probably two dozen times. The whole thing, never once in one sitting. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is a book that will keep on giving if you decide to give it as a gift or uh, give it to yourself, I suppose, for the holidays. Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Jenna, for adult fiction, some historical fiction, 
set in California during the gold rush. Uh, why'd you choose this one, and what is it? Um, I chose this one because I feel like it has a lot of Colorado relevancy. Obviously, anyone who understands anything about Colorado history understands that we had quite a gold rush and a silver rush ourselves. Um, and this book, it came out earlier this year. It got a little overshadowed by the pandemic, but it's called How Much of These Hills is Gold? And it follows these two Chinese-American children who are trying to find a way to bury their father. Mm. And it really is relevant because in Colorado, Chinese-Americans played such an important role. And again, often very overlooked in how the gold rush formed our state and, and how it formed and was really integral in our economy. And again, it's a part of our history that gets really overlooked. And so even though this one is set in California, I think it is a really good, again, jumping off point to kind of understanding this part of Colorado that um, gets forgotten about a lot. How, uh, how, I love was, the title. How much of these hills is gold? A question that no, yeah. no doubt a lot of people ask themselves. <laughs> the author is Pam Zhang. Yes, yes. Um, and she is an, an amazing woman. I had the privilege of meeting her at a trade show just before this one came out. Um, really worth watching any and all of her interviews. Um, she writes about the landscape of the Western United States so fluidly and so beautifully. Um, you'll be sucked in in no time. I can't recommend it enough. I think this one's going to the top of my list. You've convinced me. How much of these hills is gold? Uh, guys, yes, it's, it was also shortlisted for the Booker Prize. For the Booker so Prize. Definitely <laughs> worth well, reading. It's been a pleasure to speak to both of you. Happy holidays and stay safe. Thank you so yeah, much. Happy holidays to you. Jenna Meyer-Bilbo is a buyer for Off the Beaten Path Bookshop, which is in Steamboat Springs. And Rick Griffith co-owns Matter, a print shop and bookstore in Denver. And that's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I'm Ryan Warner. It's CPR News.